Thank you so much. Really, really good to be with you. Great to be with those of you in the room and also great to be with those of you watching at home as well. My name is Rich. I'm part of the leadership team here at King's. And this is the final week in our series on gospel-driven generosity. I hope that you've enjoyed this journey. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I found it incredibly encouraging and also really, really challenging, as I guess every gospel-centered teaching series should be. And over the last few weeks, we've heard how the gospel should make us more generous in every area of our lives. So in our hospitality, in how we open our homes to others, in our relationships, as we obey Jesus' command to forgive those who've wronged us, how it should make us more generous with our money and with our ministry. And as we bring this series into land, we're going to look at what it means to be generous in our worship. And of course, when we're talking about worship, we're not just talking about what we do here on Sundays, although that is part of it, and we will talk about that. But we're talking about our whole lives. Graham is a worshipper. Every Saturday, and sometimes on a weeknight, Graham spends his time, his money, and a lot of emotion following his beloved football team, Doncaster Rovers. Oh, boo. <laughs> wow. <laughs> if it's an away game, Graham's up at the crack of dawn to catch the bus. If they're at home, Graham is at the ground hours before kickoff, soaking up the atmosphere. Isabel is a worshipper. Isabel is a high school student and she wears a Taylor Swift bracelet wherever she goes. Isabel goes to every Taylor Swift gig that she can. She writes this about Taylor Swift, and this is true, I found this on the internet. Uh, she writes, I've never met her, but to me, Taylor is everything. She is the epitome of kindness and generosity. I worship the humble way in which she carries herself when she interacts with her fans. No matter where my life takes me, I hope to act in the way Taylor does with such grace and compassion. That's worship. Worship is devotion. Worship is about what captures our heart and what we willingly give ourselves to in response. So we're going to look this morning at a passage from the Bible where Jesus commends a woman for her generous worship and then rebukes a man for his selfishness and greed. And as throughout this series, there is both encouragement and challenge for us this morning. So let's look at this passage together. We're in John's Gospel, John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. If you do have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open that. Um, and we're going to stay largely in that passage. So it's John 12, verses 1 to 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. The words will be on the screen behind me. So John 12, verses 1 to 8. And it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. 
It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for your presence. I thank you that you're here with us. You've been here with us throughout this series. You're here with us this morning. And I thank you for the way that you know us. You know and understand our hearts. And and so, Lord, you know exactly what we need. You know where we need to be stirred and challenged. You know where we need to be encouraged. And I pray that as we open up this passage, Lord, that you'd help us to have open ears and open hearts to hear what you want to say to us. And I ask that, Lord, in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. I want us to try and picture this scene in the passage that I've just read about. We're in Bethany, a village just outside Jerusalem. It's about two miles to the east of Jerusalem. And Jesus is at a meal. Jesus is often at a meal. And this is a meal that has been given in Jesus' honour. And with very, very good reason. So in the previous chapter in John's Gospel, here in this same community, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that is worth celebrating. And Lazarus himself is there at the table, at this meal, eating and drinking and probably still trying to get his head around what on earth has happened to him. Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, are there too in their usual positions. Martha is serving and Mary is at Jesus' feet. And in that culture, as in many cultures still today, as they ate, people would recline, leaning on a low central table with their feet out behind them. Now, the timing of the meal is really important. John writes that this is just a few days before the Passover. In just a few days' time, Jesus will be arrested and tried and handed over to be crucified. And we'll see the significance of that as we look at this passage. But whatever was going on at this meal... Whatever plans there had been for that evening were totally interrupted by what Mary does. Mary kneels down behind Jesus. She takes out her jar of perfume and she pours this perfume liberally on Jesus. And she lets down her hair and she wipes Jesus' feet with it. And the sweet smell of perfume fills the house And you can just imagine the whole room being stilled. Conversations stop. And all eyes are on this woman and this extraordinary act of generosity. And not everyone in the room is happy about it. See, there are two very different heart attitudes on display in this passage. Two contrasting responses to Jesus. This is a tale of two hearts. And so we're going to look at these two very different hearts. We'll look at Judas's heart first, and then we'll look at Mary's heart. And as we do this, I want us to examine our own hearts, to think, where am I in this story? What is my response to Jesus? And then we'll end at looking at where the story ends. So first of all, Judas, Judas's heart. See, on a surface level here, Judas looks and sounds very generous. He sounds compassionate. He sounds caring. Judas sees this expensive offering poured out and broken. And he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a whole year's wages. And before we think, oh, that's just Judas being Judas, 
Commentators pretty much agree this is the same story that's in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. And there in Matthew and Mark's accounts, it says the other disciples were indignant too. It wasn't just Judas. Why this waste, they ask. And it sounds a really good question. I wonder how would we have responded if we'd been at that meal? Because this perfume isn't cheap. This isn't some knockoff. This is the real thing. John writes that Mary poured about a pint of pure nard over Jesus. Now, nard was a rare, precious spice that was harvested and imported from the mountains of northern India. It was made from the leaves of a shrub, and often, to increase the weight, what they do is the leaves would be mixed with its roots. But not here. Here it's pure nard, meaning without additives. A pint of this stuff would have been lavish, The volume that Mary pours on Jesus is huge. John mentions Jesus' feet here in his passage, but the other gospel writers say that Mary poured the perfume on Jesus' head. The theologian D.A. Carson says that the sheer quantity of this perfume means she probably poured it on his head, his body, and his feet, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. The volume is huge. This is extravagant giving. And so Judas tries to bring some perspective. He says, Jesus, what a waste. Just think what could have come of it if instead of wasting this, we'd sold it and given the money to the poor. Think how many lives could have been changed. Well, don't be taken in by it. John tells us what's really going on in Judas's heart, and it's anything but generous. Verse 6 says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, this isn't a pure, righteous anger at the injustice of the world. This isn't a compassion for the plight of the poor. This isn't generosity. This is greed. And here's the challenge to us. Sometimes we can say the right things. We can sound very generous And yet, if we look under the surface, our motivations aren't always as pure as they seem. Again, as we've said throughout this service, throughout this teaching series, it all comes back to the heart. It all comes back to the heart. In his book, Worship Matters, the worship leader, Bob Calflin, writes, Each of us has a battle raging within us over what we love most. God or something else. Each of us has a battle raging within us over what we love most, God or something else. All of us have these things that we love and value and serve, things that we give generously to, sometimes very good things, a relationship, our work, a sport or a hobby, our reputation. But when we love and value anything ahead of God, it is idolatry. The truth is, all of us worship something. Worship is about what we ascribe worth to. And throughout the Bible, God condemns idolatry. He hates it when we worship other gods because he knows that they're not really gods at all. They they promise so much and they demand lots from us, but they deliver very little. And they can end up changing us and enslaving us. In Psalm 135, the psalmist talks about the lifelessness of false gods and the danger of worshipping them. Here's what it says in Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, 
eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Here's the problem with worshipping anyone or anything other than Jesus. It's that we become like the things we worship. We were made to love and worship God and to reflect his glory and goodness in the world. And when we, when we worship Jesus, we're conformed into his likeness. But worship other things and we'll become reflections of them. Just like a music fan who starts dressing like the musician that she adores, we begin to look like the things we worship. Worship money and we'll become materialistic and calculating and greedy. Worship academic success and we'll end up looking down on those who aren't intellectual. Worship gods that have no real life in them and we'll end up as lifeless as they are. That is the danger of our hearts being captivated by the wrong things. So how about you? What are the things that you give your time and your money and your thoughts to? We are all worshippers. The question is, what do we worship? When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. See, God wants us to love him more than our relationships, more than our stuff, more than we love our own lives. Not because he's needy or somehow deficient or lacking without our love, but because he's worthy of our love. And because loving him is the very best thing for us. And that doesn't mean we can't love anything else, of course, but we can't love anything in the right way unless we love God more. And so Jesus says to Judas about Mary, leave her alone. And he goes on to say, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And let's be clear, Jesus isn't saying, of course, that we shouldn't give to the poor. He's not being dismissive of poverty. Throughout his ministry, Jesus cared for those on the margins, the poor and the vulnerable, those that other people despised, those that other people didn't even notice. But Jesus knows Judas's heart. Judas is critical and objectionable, not because he loves the poor, but because he loves money. He loves and values money more than he loves and values Jesus. How about us? See, Judas's heart is a challenge to all of us. Judas walked with Jesus for around three years, serving alongside him, in ministry with him. Presumably it was Jesus who gave him this responsibility for looking after the money, but money has gripped Judas's heart, and Judas's heart has become hard to Jesus. And for all Judas's words, Jesus knew that a hard heart like that can never be truly generous. So how's your heart this morning? See, this can happen to us too over time. We can go through the motions. Maybe we've been following Jesus for many years. We, we come to church we, to see him like Mary sees him. I really like Mary. Mary seemed to get who Jesus was, perhaps more than anyone else, more than the 12 disciples. Mary appears in the gospel stories three times, and each time she is at Jesus' feet. There's that story in Luke's gospel where Jesus comes to her house, and she sits just listening to him and learning from him. 
just wanting to be with him, more captivated by Jesus' presence than by anything else that needs doing in that moment. Then in John 11, she's there again at the feet of Jesus after her brother Lazarus has died. Scripture says she fell at Jesus' feet, weeping. And then here in this passage, it seems that whatever the season of life, that is where you'll find Mary. In her everyday life, she's at the feet of Jesus. In her moments of great joy and celebration, she's at the feet of Jesus. In her moments of greatest sadness and disappointment and discouragement and doubt, she's there at the feet of Jesus. Is that where you are this morning? That is a good place to be. Worship, when it comes to it, is a choice. Worship is to recognise that whatever's going on in our lives, whether things are really good for us right now or really bad, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley or somewhere in between, he is God and we're not. To worship is a posture of humility. It's why sometimes we, we often lower ourselves in sung worship. It's why some people will kneel in worship or lie down on the ground. It's why we raise our hands in worship. To worship is to acknowledge that he is high and worthy, worthy of our adoration. Not necessarily because of how we're feeling or how things are going in our lives, but because simply of who he is and what he has done for us. In Matthew and Mark's versions of this story, Jesus explains that when Mary poured perfume on his body, she did it to prepare him for burial. And, you know, we don't know if Mary totally got this, whether as she did this, she understood the significance of her act. But she just seemed to have such gratitude for who Jesus was that no gift could be too much. This act cost Mary. And not just financially. We only understand the full cost when we understand the cultural context. If you're a woman in that culture, you do not let your hair down in public. The only other person who would see a woman's hair was her husband. This act is intimate and personal. See, Mary would have known that as she did this, this would have got people's backs up. Not everyone would approve of this. This would cost her in terms of her reputation. True worship can be costly. There's the story of King David in 2 Samuel verse 6. David was a worshipper. And King David had overseen the return of the Ark of the Lord, the presence of God, to Jerusalem. And Scripture says that as the Ark neared Jerusalem, David could not contain his joy. And he dances in a linen ephod, undignified, extravagant dancing. I wonder, have you ever seen anyone so lost in dancing that they're unaware of anything else in the room? David is like that. David is having a proper party. And his wife is watching and she doesn't approve of it at all. The text says she despised him in her heart. And she says to him sarcastically, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked. But David responds, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. See, his worship was undignified and extravagant and full of joy. He was so lost in worship, so caught up in the Lord, that he was unconcerned by the judgment of others. I remember when we first came to King's, it was really my first experience of lively, charismatic 
worship. I was brought up in a much more traditional Methodist church, and I'm so grateful for that church. I'm grateful for the teaching that I grew up with, for the truth in the hymns that we sang, for the grounding that I had in the faith. But when I came here, I saw people getting genuinely excited in worship, people that were raising their hands in worship. One guy who used to jump up and down on the seats. And at first, when I came here, I thought, that's a bit much, isn't it? (laughs) See, for me, this was lively. I hadn't experienced this before. And then I saw how much money people here gave to the church. Regular, sacrificial, financial giving each month and gift days on top of that. Over the last few weeks, we've given together £50,000. I used to see money like that and I used to think, that's a bit much, isn't it? And then I got to know people in the church and I saw how much time people here gave to church life, being part of small groups and serving. And forgive me, church, I used to think, that's a bit much, isn't it? But then I really got to know Jesus. And I realised he is so worthy of our worship. Do you know, I love that we have a worship team here who are passionate in the way that they lead us. Praise God for our worship team, for worshippers who are excited about what they're singing. Do you know, people who are, whose worship on the stage on a Sunday flows out of their worship of Jesus in their everyday lives. Jesus is worthy of heartfelt, joy-filled worship. You know, a heart like Judas's looks at an offering like Mary's and says it's a waste, it's too much. But a heart like Mary's says, how can any gift be too extravagant for a saviour like this? When we get a big picture of Jesus, it changes everything. Our saviour, Jesus, the one who placed the stars in the sky, the one who existed before anything existed, the one through whom and for whom everything was made. He took on flesh. He came and he lived a life of extraordinary generosity. And then on the cross, the most generous act of all, he gave himself for us. He sacrificed himself for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him will not perish, but have eternal life. When we see Jesus, when we see who he is and what he's done for us, our perspective shifts. The currency changes. Things that we've treasured and placed value on and held in high esteem, these things suddenly seem so small and insignificant and unworthy in comparison. Things that once seemed so shiny suddenly lose their shine. For Mary, Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. Is a resurrection story. And resurrection stories are always worth celebrating. So Mary takes the most precious gift she has and she pours it out for Jesus. And all around this room and watching at home this morning, there are resurrection stories. If we're Christians, we've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Do we believe that? That we're resurrection stories. He's brought us out of the pit that we were in. He's placed our feet on a rock. He's paid our our debt against God that we could never, ever pay. Everything that we've ever done wrong and said wrong and thought wrong, all of it an offence to a holy God, all of it paid for at the cross. And he's given us new life in all its fullness, a new identity, 
a new purpose, a new community, new life? How do we respond to that kind of generosity? What is the only appropriate response? Well, I think the only appropriate response is to live radically generous lives as an act of worship to him. Romans 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Oh, I love the message version of this. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Our whole lives placed before Jesus as an offering. That is worship. And so everything we've talked about in this series is worship. How we use our time, how we use our money, how we use our home and our resources, how we use the gifts God has given us, what we do here on Sunday mornings, all of it given as an offering to him. And living like that might well cost us. In some parts of the world, worshipping Jesus would cost us our lives. Here it might cost us our reputation, it might cost us our popularity, it might cost us more. But that is worship. And every act of worship is seen by Jesus. Jesus says to Judas, leave Mary alone. He sees Mary's worship. He sees her heart. And he sees yours too. As I was preparing this, I felt God wanted to encourage some of you that actually what you do to serve Jesus, it's never, ever unseen. The time that you give up, the energy that you pour out as you serve, as you lead, he sees it. It might be unseen by others, it's never unseen by the one who truly matters. I felt Jesus wanted to remind you of who you're doing it for. I felt him say, don't grow tired of it, don't grow bitter. Ultimately, you're doing this for Jesus. It's an act of worship to him and he is so worthy of our worship. So as I come into close, and as we bring this series into land, Judas's story and Mary's story, well, they go in very different directions. They end in very different places. For Judas, his greed and his betrayal came to define him. He's described in this passage as Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus. That is forever his legacy. In contrast, we're told in Matthew's gospel that whenever the gospel is preached, Mary's act of worship will be told in memory of her. That is her legacy. Judas's story ends in tragedy. Mary's story, well, presumably Mary's story has a glorious ending, like all those who recognize who Jesus truly is. See, late on in his life, John is given a revelation from God. He's shown a picture of what is happening in heaven right now and what will happen when Jesus returns. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, the story ends in worship. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all those who've put their trust in Jesus for their salvation will worship him forever. One day, church, we'll gather with Christians from every nation and we'll see Jesus face to face and all we'll be able to do is worship. But for now... For every day that we're given, with every breath that we've been given, as we recognise all the more who he is, we get to worship him with our lives. To live lives of radical, gospel-driven generosity out of gratitude to the God who gave everything for us. Amen? Amen. 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 Richard.